Hello and welcome back to the History of the British Isles podcast. This is episode 37, A Land Without Saxons or Angles. Well, it's been a bit of time since we've done one of these scripted narrative-covering episodes. It's good to get back to them, isn't it? I hope you did enjoy the interviews and found them interesting. They were very fun and informative to me. This time we'll be hopping in our time machine and travelling back a solid 1,000 years from our last narrative episode to cover Wales under the Romans and the period immediately after the Romans abandoned Britain. Before we begin, I would like you, I'd like to remind you all to follow me on Twitter, where I'm at BritishHistPod. I'd also like to ask you to join the community Discord server, which I'll link in the description. It would be nice to get a little community going over there and have some discussion about the podcast and history in general. One last thing, please consider chipping in on Patreon. My donation total has jumped quite significantly recently, and I'll be thanking all the people involved at the end of the episode. Still, we're moving to onto the $20 a month goal, and it would be great to have a pool of funds of that size to invest in research material and other podcast quality improvements as the show goes on. I don't want to keep you all waiting any longer. I mean, it's been a solid four weeks since we last covered our narrative, so let's dive straight in. Under the Romans, there wasn't really much of a concept of Wales. It was simply just another part of Britain. The Romans first invaded the area we now call Wales in 47 AD under the general Asturias, who fought against the Decangale tribe. A short while after this, he fought against another Western Britonic, another one of the Western Britonic tribes, the Silures. The Silures were an ally of the powerful rebel king Caractacus, who was being a bit of nu- a nuisance to the Roman authorities. He had been pushed out of his own land in southern England and was looking to restore Britonic independence. Another ally of Caractacus was the northeastern Welsh tribe known as the Ordovices. The Romans, however, outpowered Caractacus and the Britons in 51 AD. Caractacus fled to the Brigantes tribe of northern Britain, whose queen, Cartamandua, probably handed him off to the Roman authorities. However, I don't want to get into that right now. We've got a lot to get through in Wales alone and I can't afford to wander too far off the path. The Ordovices tried another rebellion against the Romans in, 19- in 79 AD, but were promptly defeated. This brought all of the modern Welsh provinces under Roman control, with the area administratively divided, at least from a simplified modern perspective, into the uplands and the lowlands. The lowlands were the main area of Roman control, governed from Uenta Silurium, modern-day Carwent. Roman villas are also found predominantly in southeastern Wales, showing that the lowlands were likely far more influenced by Roman culture. However, don't let me give you the impression that the Romans didn't have an influence in more distant regions of Wales. Later royal dynasties in Wales would often claim descent from the Emperor Constantine III, which may have been confused with the first Christian Emperor of Rome, Constantine the Great. Latin words are also occasionally used in Welsh, however. Neither of these could be as significant to the Welsh as the introduction of Christianity. Very few, if any, details survive of the conversion to Christianity, of the Welsh conversion to Christianity, However, 
it was likely mostly, if not fully, completed by the 5th or 6th centuries. Roman rule was declining in Wales by the 4th century, possibly even the 3rd. Irish raiders posed a growing threat, demonstrated by coastal towns such as Cardiff, Wales' modern capital on the south coast, and Holyhead, a town in Anglesey off an island off the north-west coast of Wales, had coastal forts built or strengthened to resist these raiders. There was also evidence of increased activity in old, pre-Roman, hill forts around this time. This could further indicate a weakening of the Roman grip on Wales around this time. The Roman historian Amelinus Marcellinus recorded raids by the Irish and the Picts in Britain in 360 AD. The empire simply couldn't cope with all these raids. By the latter half of the 4th century, the Roman Empire was under increased pressure, both politically and militarily. There were far more... There are far less resources available for distant and remote provinces such as the ones in Britannia. This is particularly true about Wales, being at the furthest reaches of the empire. Into this vacuum of central power stepped a man with a name no one could ever have lived up to, Magnus Maximus. Magnus was a Roman general originally from Spain and took advantage of the chaos to, with the support of much of the legions in Britain, make himself emperor of Gaul, Spain and Britannia. His rule was relatively short, only between 383 and 388 AD, but its effects were disastrous. It wasn't because he was incompetent, far from it, Magnus was a talented general, but because he withdrew large parts of the British legions to support his campaigns on the continent. Though Britain would still be in contact with Rome, many parts of the island were now left to fend for themselves. As we've discussed, this was particularly true about Wales, being the most distant part of Britain. The first decade of the 5th century saw huge upheaval all across the Roman Empire. The remaining legions in Britain elected countless emperors, the last of which being Constantine III. Remember, the guy all the Welsh kings would later claim as their ancestors? Well, Constant- Constantine took most of the remaining army in Britain on campaign to Gaul. The later historian Zosimus, writing in the 6th century, recorded one of Constantine's general, a certain Gerontius, making the situation even worse when he, in 408, allied with the barbarians and attacked Constantine. This made the embattled emperor's forces even more stretched. And this may have been the instigator for the the throwing off of Roman officials by parts of Britain and Gaul. Seeing as the emperor was doing nothing to protect them, these people decided to take defence into their own hands. Some places even reverted to tribal rule. All this chaos came together in 410, which is generally considered the end date for Roman rule in Brit- of Britain. The reason for that it, for this is that, deciding to throw off the resource-sucking Constantine, the Britons decided to beg the emperor in Rome, Honorius, to let them back into the empire. However, Honorius told them to f- defend themselves. This basically left Britain without any imperial governance or protection. For the next two centuries, the history of Britain, particularly Wales, is uncertain. There are very few available sources, and most of them are foreign or from far later on. This means that we only have a really bare-bones chronology. The Byzantine historian Procopius, writing near 100 years later, believed Britain was inhabited by the Angles, the Frisians, and the Britons. Each of these supposedly had their own rulers, 
Procopius also recorded regular migration between Britain and Gaul, especially to Amorica, modern-day Brittany. However, he got most of his evidence from the Frankish diplomats, and they likely wanted to indicate the Britons being subservient to the fact that they had to rely on Frankish handouts of land. Copius wasn't alone in talking about barbarian invasions of Britain in the early 500s, with many other continental chroniclers talking about political upheaval in Britain. Perhaps the best-known chronicler of, Britain his- of British history during this time was Gildas, who was writing in the middle of the 6th century from Brittany. Gildas, however, was not a historian, and he wasn't trying to write inaccurate records of the, going on, of the goings-on in Britain. He was writing a sermon called On the Ruin of Britain, a call to the people of his own time to be more pious. He includes no dates and mentions very few historical figures, as his audience would have likely known all the people he was talking about anyways. Well, what can this Breton te- preacher tell us? Well, and take everything from here on with a bucket load of salt. He describes raids by the Picts being responded to by a tyrant, who the later Anglo-Saxon historian Bede calls Vortigern, inviting three ships, shiploads of Saxon mercenaries who were given land in Eastern Britain. These Saxons were supposedly led, though Gildas does not record it, by Hengist and Horsa. However, these names have been called into doubt as they literally translate as stallion and horse. Anyway, a while later, the mercenaries complained of bad treatment and rebelled against their boss. Gildas records them destroying major settlements and invading most of the island. Not to mention, these Saxons killed pretty much everything in Britain, every Briton they came into contact with, with most of the others fleeing overseas. To me, this sounds quite Viking-like. I bet when the Anglo-Saxons were being conquered by the Vikings, the Welsh would have been quietly muttering, what goes around, comes around. Well, the Britons would get back at the Saxons under a son, Ambrosius Aurelianus, one of the few names Gildas does in fact mention. Ambrosius defeated the invaders quite a few times, eventually decisively winning at the Battle of Baden Hill. Now that we've gone through what everyone's favourite Breton preacher actually said, let's pick it apart. Firstly, who is this Ambrosius Aurelianus guy? Well, Gildas claims he was a Roman gentleman, while Bede claims he was a rival of Vortigern. Ambrosius is often also seen as the origin of the King Arthur legend. The Battle of Baden Hill is almost always included in the Arthurian chronology, and Arthur did fight the Saxons and eventually win. Now, onto a bigger question. How did the Britons realistically resist? Well, there was likely a network of local kingdoms based around hill forts, as well as old Roman towns. Gildas supports the idea of the development of small kingdoms, naming five rulers he calls tyrants. However, as with all things Gildas, he may have just called them that to add to the meaning of his sermon. He accuses all of the tyrants of extortion, adultery, incest, robbery and ill governance. Basically, he accuses them of basically everything he possibly could. And usually, he names all five of these tyrants. Constantine of Damnonia, Aurelius Caninus, Waterpus of the Demite, Cunglassus, and Maglocunus. It is, as always, questionable whether any of these were real people, so let's go through them one by one. Firstly, let's go through the two places attached to our tyrants. Damnonia is likely a bastardization and or mistranslation of Domnonia, modern Cornwall and Devon. 
Devon and Cornwall are on that little peninsula that sticks out from the southwestern corner of England, so it's not exactly what we now consider Wales. However, this area was one of the last bastions of Romano-Celtic culture. Even today, it has its own, albeit nearly extinct, Celtic language, which is similar to Breton. The other place named was the, was the Demite, which possibly refers to the future kingdom of Diffed. Diffed is on the southwest coast of Wales, and will become one of the main places we'll talk about as we continue. Fortipor, who is named as the king of the Demite, is also included in the family tree of later kings of Diffed. In addition to this, his name is included on a monument stone at Castle Ran near Carmarthen. It reads, Memora Vortipogis Protectoris, translated to, To the memory of Vortipur the Protector. The stone dates to the mid-600s, mid so provides at least near-contemporary evidence of Vortipur actually being a real person. Now, let's go through the rest of our tyrants. Maglocunus is possibly Malguin Gwenid, who is referred to by the later Welsh chronicle, Historia Britannicum, as Melcunus Maximus, with Maximus meaning the Great. So, they certainly had a better opinion of him than Gildas did. Melguin was supposedly de- the descendant of the legendary Cuneda, founder of the royal house of Gwenid. Gwenid will later become the dominant Welsh kingdom, so while Melguin slash Maglocunus was kind of a big deal, Gildas paints a picture of a ruthless but skilled warrior, not averse to brutality. Obviously, this goes against the Christian party Gildas wants out of a king. He also he was also claimed as an ancestor by pretty much all of the later princes of Wales. Now, let's move on to the, on to the slightly harder people to talk about, Aurelius, Caninus and Cudan Glasses. We're going to be in incredibly shaky territory here, so take everything I say from here on with, a, with caution. Caninus could possibly be a wordplay of Sinin, the, ro- the founder of the Royal House of Paris. However, the name Sinin wasn't uncommon and the lineage of Paris would be manipulated many a time by later rulers to favour particular candidates to the, for the throne. This means there was little to, there's literally no certainty. Our other man, Cone Glasses, who wins the Best Name Award, may have, may have been Sinless, who appears, to, who appears in the royal land lineage of Kings of Ross, one of the smaller Welsh kingdoms located in northern Wales. However, as with Caninus, the ruling line of Ross would later be manipulated by later rulers, so we can never really know. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and learnt something new. As I mentioned at the beginning, please join the community Discord server and follow me on Twitter. As always, I'll drop a link to both of those in the description. If you have any more information about the uncertainty I've covered today, please do email me or tweet at me. My email is historyofbritishisles of the British Isles at gmail.com. Also, please do leave a review for the podcast wherever you listen and subscribe. It takes only a few minutes and helps the podcast grow immensely. Thanks in advance. I've got quite a few Patreon announcements to do, well, more than usual. Anita Gardoni has upped her donation to £10, so an extra large thank you to her. We've also got a new patron, Luke Baxter. He's joined as a $2.50 tier gentleman, which is really cool. A big thank you to him. All of this means I'll be doing a special episode decided on by patrons. We're making that in about a month, so we can get back into the narrative a bit first. 
One last thing before we go, I put a survey up about the podcast. It's mainly to decide how long episodes should be, as I've been experimenting with longer episodes recently. But I've asked about for a rating and maybe some feedback, if you have any. I'll link that in the description, so please fill it in if you have time. This isn't like the one I did a while ago, where I was trying to reform the podcast due to a feeling of inadequacy, but rather a small thing to gauge where we are and what you want out of the show. I think it's great to know what listeners think about the show, as it allows me to make the best content possible. On that note, fuel foul, goodbye in Welsh.